listening to the Retro Guardians. Okay, now what? Buckle up. It's time to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of gum. Groovy. Little Hand says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Hasta la vista, baby. Retro Guardians. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Retro Guardians. This is Jay. And I'm Ben. And today, Ben, we're going to be talking something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about killer cars or killer vehicles, so to speak. Well, that's sort of like a small subgenre within film, so I'm pretty sure we can figure up with some interesting films to mention to the audience. So I think maybe this was a bit of a genre that started early 70s, wasn't it? And Absolutely. There were a number of different... Um, takes on it over the years and it's probably something you don't see much of these days no no um but there's two kinds you've got the kind of mad max kind of ones and then you've got the unexplained whether it's supernatural or otherworldly sort of influences yeah and i think the one that sort of sticks in my mind as being the one that kicked this off was you might have to help me with the year here but it was dual was it 71 I think it was 72, 73. It okay. was literally just before Jaws. Mm. And he did a film called um, The Sugarland Express, which I think was... I think you're right, actually. I think it might be 71, 72. It's in there. Because Sugarland, I think, was 73. It was sort of in there, I think, or 72. So the premise of um, Jewel was, for those that don't know it, it was a, a guy that was... I think he was a sales rep just travelling through the American desert trying to overtake a tanker. And the um, driver of the tanker, or the supposed driver, we don't we know never that, know. We never <laughs> got, know. got a little bit angry, a little bit pissed off that he was being overtaken, and then it was a game of cat and mouse that went on for the whole movie. And it was it was very much keeping you on the edge, not knowing what to expect. There was a lot of um, sort of nail-biting scenes there, really. And it sort of, after watching that, it sort of makes you think twice about overtaking a car ever again. One of the things that made that film work so well, it was actually written by Richard Matheson, who was the same author of I Am Legend, and he'd written several sort of horror science fiction short stories and novels since the 1950s, and he was really good at crafting stories. Um, I think Real Steel is also based on another short story of his as well. So when you match someone of that writing calibre with someone like an early prodigy like Steven Spielberg, I mean, you get gold. Now, that movie was originally made as a TV movie, but when they saw it, they were so impressed with it, they put it straight into the cinemas. I mean, right. that's the difference between that and sort of those sort of B-grade ones that we grew up with later on. It was so good. They were so happy. But Spielberg filmed it in a specific ratio that when they put it on the big screen, you can actually see him in certain shots with the camera because he's actually in the back seat of the, the car with the uh, oh, Dennis Weaver who played the main lead. Okay. So, yeah, they had to change it to fit a certain... Uh, certain framing with um, with the cinemas. I remember reading about that. Mm. Yeah, so I think that one, and, and as we mentioned before, um, it was a bit of the unknown as to whether or not there was actually a driver in the truck. I know there was a couple of scenes in it where um, you sort of saw some feet get out, but, you know, was it was it not a driver? Was it 
I don't know, sort of, there, there were t- times in the movie where you sort of thought, oh, is it like a supernatural sort of force behind the wheel? And this, this theme carries on to some other movies, which we'll talk about soon, but um, you never got a glimpse of the driver. No, the only thing I do remember seeing, like you said, but I also remember seeing the um, the mirrors on the truck. Mm. We always see certain angles of the mirrors, so we assume someone's in there, yep. but we never see them. No, and I, no. I think that's more suspenseful. And... It also adds to that uh, mystery and imagination of what, what do they look like? Are they grotesque? Are they hideous? Are they this? Are mm. they that? And I think that's more powerful. Yeah. Ambiguity is one thing I do agree with, but its lack of these days sort of uh, angers me. And that's for why I think that 70s period was so powerful because there were things still left up to your imagination, not explained straight away. Yeah. And I think even that movie today has got a really big sort of cult following. I know there's a Facebook group um, with, you know, thousands of people that just go on every day and talk about this movie, Jewel. Um, And it's, you know, people are driving around with number plates that are, you know, the number plates of the car or the truck in the movie to this day. Um, People are buying and making little models of the tanker. Like, yeah, it's, it's quite a, it's got quite the following. So the tanker always stood out to me because it was grotty. It wasn't yeah. clean. It was looked like it'd been it through hell. Down. Yeah, Bucket and that really worked. Yep. If it'd been a clean one, I don't think it would have worked. It wouldn't no. have sparked our interest. No, and I think that was part of the whole um, suspense and the unknown. Like you've got this old crappy, you know, uh, piece of rust bucket that's um, got some real power behind it. Like, it's overtaking a car and driving at top speed. I think in one quote in the movie, the guy's like, you know, what's he done to it? It's souped up. Like, this this truck has got so much power. And I think that sort of adds to the whole, you know, the mystery of is this thing supernatural or not? How does it... And so, uh, the, basically, the premise of the whole movie, the truck's just playing cat and mouse with this car and he's sort of making this guy's life a hell and won't let him get away. The scene I always remember is... He, he's had enough and he pulls yep. over the side road and has a nap yep. and he assumes the car the truck has taken off and it's mm. it's gone it's been a couple of hours and then he wakes up looks around and he's like oh it must be gone blah blah gets in it drives off and about five minutes later goes around the corner and there's a great pull out shot of the truck on the side of the road waiting mm. for him yeah and I love those moments and I love the music. As soon as he drives past it, it starts up and starts to follow him again. Yeah. But there are a lot of, uh, these days, there are a lot of similarities and comparisons to Jaws. Mm. Spielberg used a lot of the same techniques and a lot of the ways to not, you know, to keep the suspense going. And one of the little things I've got to mention quickly, when the truck is destroyed, it goes over a cliff in this film, there's a sound of an actual dinosaur screaming as it sort of plows into the ground. That same noise is used when the shark is killed in mm. Jaws. Yep. He kept the same sort of sound. It is a dinosaur sound. I don't know if, what film. Yeah. And but... I think that also goes to sort of the whole supernatural premise, doesn't it? Like it's yeah. sort of So years noise. and years later, Tony Scott made a film called Unstoppable with Denzel Washington and Chris Pine, and mm. they did a same, similar thing. It's about an, an out-of-control um, driverless train they put a specific animal noise over it to give it a sense of character. Mm. It's like a cheetah or it's a cat sort of noise. And so you hear it, and I think it was based on sort of Jules' take on that as well, that it had to give it a bit of character other than just what you were seeing. Mm. And on that topic, I guess from, you know, you talk about Jaws. Jaws was actually an inspiration to another um, killer car movie. So 1977, movie called The Car. Um, the director was given a brief to make a, a movie which was essentially Jaws on Land. Um, 
And this this was another cool sort of um, movie, and it had very similar sort of throwbacks to Duel in a lot of ways. And um, I think a few of the movies we talk about uh, um, today all have that premise of who was driving the car. And in the car, you never actually also see who's driving it. Um, there's a couple of scenes where people are like, oh, you know, we had a glance in and there's no one in there. You know, it was driving itself. Um, but they still sort of leave it up to your imagination. They never actually show you. Um, but also, I think that goes into the time period as well about yeah, lack of budget and absolutely. effects. How can you make it extra scary with no budget? One of the things, going back to Jaws, that still stands out to me is the shark hardly ever worked. Mm. So Spielberg had to think up ways to keep the audience interested and more suspenseful in that. Mm. I think the same premise here was that with this film. We don't have a lot of money, but how do we keep it interesting? How do we keep the audience invested? And I think pre-CGI era, that's yeah. what they did. It was very common. Yeah, yeah. And the director did actually talk about that, saying... Um Oh, Elliot Silverstein, the director of the car, he was saying things like, you know, it was a pre-CGI era, so they had to rely on a lot of special effects. I'm just going to play the trailer for the car. Just have a bit of a listen. This goes for a couple of minutes. Those that haven't seen the movie, it'll give you a bit of a sort of an idea and what it's about. Evil has visited the Earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. There was no driver in the car. The car possessed. There we go, the car, 1977. So that um, sort of gives you a bit of context about the movie. So you've got this driverless car running around, causing all sorts of grief, terrorising the local community. And and the thing about this car, and we've also seen this in a couple of the other movies, is they've taken like a fairly stock, I think this one was like a Lincoln, but they've, they've done it up with like extra body mouldings and different design to make it look sinister and it's actually got quite that look about it like it looks like a scary car it's not your stock standard car off the shelf that they've used for the movie they've made it look a little bit sinister no that's one thing about those films i do have noticed they mm. deliberately have gone out of the way to make the car look different and look yeah. more menacing um 
Elliot Silverstein, who you mentioned as the director, actually directed Cat Balouse, which is a comedy western from the mid-60s. He did a lot of those. So this mm. is a sort of veteran director that had done multiple genres. So for them to get him to do it, I think they were thinking, let's get someone who's seasoned, not, not a rookie. Mm. So I definitely think that helped with this film as well. Yeah, and I think, are we allowed to talk spoilers on this show with the movies? I assume people are around our age don't mm. mind being told it. I mean, we now live in a spoiler sort of environment where everything's spoiled every five seconds. Well, I'm going to talk. I'm going to say a bit of a spoiler about this movie, so if you don't want to hear it, just tune out for the next 30 seconds or so. But I think a common theme with Jewel, the car, and also the next one I want to talk about... Um, Actually, no, not the next one. I'm going to talk about a, a, a Stephen King classic next, but the final one, Wheels of Terror, which is we're going to touch on later. There's a common theme about how they kill these things, how they destroy the car, and they're all the same. Cliffs. Do you know what that is? Cliffs. Cliffs. They drive, they force the car to go over the cliff, blows up in flames, and there's no evidence of, you know, who was in the car or anything. It's incinerated. No, we never see the, the drivers. No, that's true. No, but... I think if we're ever chased by a killer car, we're in a bit of strife because there's no cliffs around here that we can drive it off. Not, not the top of my head, no. No, so we'd be stuffed. We'd be dead. But, um, yeah, so the car, highly recommend having a look at that one. Um, another really good, good um, killer car movie. And, and low budget, but certainly still keeps you on your feet. And speaking of the car, it, one of the main actors in it was Ronnie Cox, who mm. most people would remember from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, Robocop, Total Recall, Deliverance, who actually just had a birthday this week. I just found out he's 84. So it's it's one of those other things i got to mention quickly as well. They did hire veteran actors at times for some of these films. And, I mean, that's one of those things about ultra-low-budget movies. One thing I've always noticed is there's at least one or two actors in there who careers are sort of not at a peak at that point and are just looking for work and that sort of brings a bit more caliber to the movie by having decent actors in it and i mean uh, both jewel and uh, the car do feature decent actors and so does the next couple of films that we mentioned and i think that's one of the smart plays that when you're doing films like this you've got to put someone in there that's capable i mean if you're going to have a couple of people in there that are, you know for the youth factor reasons that's fine but you need veterans it definitely helps it mm. Definitely. So the next killer car movie I want to talk about is probably one of my favourites of all time, and it's been a favourite of mine since I was, what, maybe 13, 14? Um, and I read the book, watched the movie, and to this day it probably still remains one of my favourites, and I'm sure you know what that is, don't you, Ben? I do. It's John Carpenter's Christine, based on the book by Stephen King. That's the one. And... This is slightly different, but still same sort of premise. Um, Richie finds an old beaten up... uh, Richie Cunningham, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, An old... No, no, no. Gordy Cunningham. You're thinking about Happy Days. Happy... Okay. Yeah, close. It's played by Keith Gordon, and um, he's the typical um, nerd of the school, and he comes across this car with his friend, and he decides (coughs) then and there that um, he wants to do it up. Yeah, and he takes this old bucket of rust to a workshop. Um, what was the name of the workshop? I can't remember. It's on that poster. I saw it the other day. That's why I kept it. For and that he reason. spends a bit of time fixing it up. But this car has supernatural Darnell's. powers. Darnell's. That's the one. The supernatural powers, and it basically heals itself. It's the previous owner, yeah. which we never see. 
but we hear all this story and backstory about the fact that this previous owner's wife and daughter both died in this car. Yeah. Yep. So the car has mended itself, fixed up all its faults, and it's now a gleaming, shining, brand new Chev. But, but there's um, at the beginning of it, he does do the car up and he does it himself, and then he starts to change. His, yeah. his personality, persona, everything starts to change the moment he has this car. And there's a big, big difference between before and after. Now, one of the scenes that's very memorable is there's a group of school bullies who have found out that he has this car and they find that he's parking it in the said mentioned workshop. They go in and they trash it and when he finds out, he has a meltdown. Well, he then spends a bit of time trying to do the car up and that's when, as Jay mentioned, it starts to do itself up. And that's one of the most memorable scenes in the whole movie. Yeah. And um, the music, everything in that scene works. Now, once again, this is pre-CGI days, so it was all done in camera. And how they did it, they did everything in reverse. Now, I remember on the makings, they said they have over 25 cars Mm. for Christine. And they had bits and pieces. And the actual workshop where it's set for Darnell's, actually cut it in half. Mm. So there's a back area that they actually used to do up all the cars in. And so... I mean, there's moments in the car, in the whole movie, when it destroys itself and rebuilds itself. You're like, yeah. how does it do yeah. it? How's it do it? How are they affording this? Mm. So, yeah, they, they cannibalized, I don't know how many cars to do mm. it. But one of the complaints with, and it was a 1957... Plymouth Fury. Yes. There was one problem with that car, the ignition. Mm. I remember hearing Keith Gordon, who played Gordy, say the ignition played up so many times when he tried to start the car. That was one that wrecked a lot of takes trying to get the car right. Mm. Now, the book itself was set in the late 70s and it was released in the early 80s. And it was one of the few times at that point in time where he was so on fire as a writer, they bought it before it was even um, printed. So they were making the film as the before the book came out. So both the book and the film came out almost simultaneously. It's different. Yeah, he was so popular back then, especially in that early 80s period. Mm. They, everyone was buying up his stuff instantly, before it even hit the shelves. That's how the producers specifically just went, oh, I want that, I want that. Mm. Now, but in the original book, I can't remember the name of the original owner of the car. You, oh, yeah, I can't either, actually. Yeah, but in the book, he's in the back of the seat, sort of egging Arnie on, uh, Gordy. Uh, Arnie, like Gordy, the yeah. spirit of him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's egging him on. And... Um, the writer at the time, I can't think of his name either, but he had read that, and the first thing he thought was, that's American Werewolf in London. You've got a character that's sort of degrading or mm. you know decomposing with you, and it's like, no, that'll take everyone away from it. So they stripped it down to that the car is the star, and they put the, all the info... Uh, info all their focus was put onto the car. Now, one of the other things they did, they actually used blackened out windshields mm. so you could never see the driver. So that's one of the other things that adds to Christine about, well, is it him driving the car or is the car driving itself? Mm. So for a lot of the film, we're not sure. That's right, because the scenes that you're talking about was basically when the car was taking revenge on those bullies that broke into the garage and smashed it up and wrecked it. So we don't know if Richie was behind the wheel. Once again, very similar premise to those other killer car movies. Um, But as you say, we know that um, the the main character's um, attitude had changed throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and I said earlier, Um, Gordy, I meant Artie. It's Artie Cunningham, Keith Gordon, who played him. But you're right. And that was um, one of the things that he said about that role. Now, he had been in Jaws too, and he'd done a couple of films with Brian De Palma. I think Dressed to Kill was another... 
he said you don't get offered that kind of role as an early 20 year old i think he was 21 or 22 at the time and he literally said it was like a jekyll and hyde but jekyll and hyde you yeah you don't get offered at that time period so one of the things that carpenter did differently with that film in terms of giving him direction he pretty much told him straight off the the top of the bat you're in love with the car it's a romance it could be possessive it can be jealousy it can be many things on both sides but that's what he literally talked to him about when it came to it and i think that um that whole premise of rich uh, the, the main character actually changing his persona from you know that nerdy school kid to the um possessed evil you know jealous jealous type um sort of also led to a bit of that suspense about okay what's he going to do next um and ultimately you know the car was going to consume him yeah in the film he starts dating a girl and the car gets jealous and his best friend is um sidelined at the time because of a a football accident in school so both of them come to the conclusion that something's not right and the car is at the center of it and so it's one of those things that just adds to the melodrama and it's a film that i i honestly believe holds up very well for its time um there's a few films that don't but that one because it was all in camera techniques they didn't there was no matte paintings there was none of that it was just basic simple um practical effects Mm. and also the use of music the use of the time period definitely the shooting locations it's definitely a film i recommend of being one of stephen king based films from the early 80s that holds up that and could joe i I vote as two of the best Mm. and they they did actually kill the car off a little different this one didn't go over a cliff no it got uh, sodomized by a big bulldozer and then crushed into a crusher and one of the things that they do in the movie they use music really well with the car yes yes yeah that the one that sticks in my mind is the the scene where the car comes back to life um and it's that uh yeah that's the one show me So one of the things that worked really well with Christine is one of the things they did was there was a new song out at the time called Badge of the Bone by George Thorogood and it was the very first movie to use it in the opening credits and it was sort of showcasing the car getting made that it was evil from the beginning. The very end of the movie after the car is destroyed we start hearing music again and we assume it's the car coming back to life and then behind the rubble comes out a workman carrying a (laughs) boombox with a song. Yes. And one of the last comments by one of the actors is, I hate rock and roll. Yeah. But then we zoom in on the wreck and there's just one little tiny little movement mm. on that. And then we see that this possibility could come back. It's still alive. Yep. Now, there's some talk of a remake of that. Yeah, I believe it's Bloomhouse Productions who mm. are currently behind the new Halloween movies as well as most of the films of Jordan Peele's, the the Purge films, all that. Um, they're also behind the current remake of Firestarter. Okay. So right now there is a big craving to remake a lot of Stephen King stuff and I'm sort of very in the middle about that. Mm. Now some things worked at the time and I don't see the need to change them but some things were, mm. case in point, changed because the producers or the director didn't agree with it. So I'm of the mindset you didn't need to but i will check it out just for the sake of saying i've seen it but it's definitely in the works i do know that much okay cool so i guess that brings us to the last of the killer car movies well there's another one in between that i wanted to bring up with you if you're Mm -hmm. up for that 
There's a kid out there using his car to kill people. A wraith, man! A ghost! An evil spirit, and it ain't cool! What are you doing? Packard, stop Get it! Get in the car! What are you doing, man? You get out of my go. face, Burger Boy! You wind up dead like your brother! So in 86, there was a film made called The Rafe. Now, I think I saw it in 88, and it was the first film I ever saw Charlie Sheen in. Yeah, I've never seen it. Okay, it also features Nick Cassavetes, Ranch Howard, Sharon Fenn, who's done a lot of stuff with um, David Lynch. And it was sort of the precursor to The Crow, that a boy is killed, and it's been about a year since he died, or maybe longer, and then all of a sudden a new kid turns up in town, but then the bullies that are responsible for the death of this kid earlier um they're the types that race kids for their cars and if they lose they take their cars off them yeah and they start picking on the brother the younger brother of the the said kid who's been murdered and then out of nowhere a souped up turbo kind of car turns up Mm. out of nowhere which they've never seen ever in their before in their lives so they well why don't we what kind of car is that oh we'll figure that out when we put it in a collection well it starts racing them and one by one, it beats every one of them and as well as kills a member one at a time. But what's unusual is every time it does it, it destroys itself and then rebuilds itself instantly. And we we get a good look at the, the driver, but it's a very sort of, he's always in the distance. It's it's a really weird thing that I didn't know at the time. It, it has sort of these sort of braces over him. Now, what I looked up later on was these braces were used to reset bones. Yeah. And so when the car destroys itself, you see the braces on the ground, and then suddenly they disappear. And there's a moment after he's killed the first boy, we just see him in the horizon sitting on a rock. And he's all in black wearing a sort of unique sort of helmet. And then suddenly you see the brace reappear over his arms. And um, at the time, it was very unique. It was, um, it was also using music very well. It was using locations very well. A lot of younger actors, but it did uh, feature uh, Randy Quaid at the time playing the sheriff, and he added a bit of calibre to it. But it definitely tapped into that whole teenage, early 20-year-old sort of car culture that America and Australia have done very well over the years. Mm. And it very much played into all those sort of tropes of the time. But it also played in the notion we don't know what this Rafe is or who it is. Mm. There's There's a inkling who it might be. But it's not really explained to the very end. But it's never fully explained how and what and how this Rafe became what it is. So That's all he, left up to us. Does that movie still have the same premise of, like, is the car... Yeah, does the car have a driver? Yes. Or yes. you don't know? But we do see the driver, but we never see him drive it and we never see him get out of the car. Yeah. So we, But it has this weird assumption that they're, they're the same thing, mm. that they're, they're connected, they're merged. Mm. There's a great moment where um, Rughead is the name of the character played by Ranch Howard. He puts on a device onto their cars that would short them, short them out if they break the rules. Mm. And he puts it on the, the bad guy's then car, and then he tells the, the, the thing, I need to do this, blah, blah. Well, the engine's in the back of the car and not in the front, and it's, like, souped up. They've done effects to make it look like it's a, li- a heart almost, like a living, breathing heart. And he calls out to the main bad guy, you need to see this. He's like, just get on with it, and he does it. But it's the only time we see inside the car. We never actually see inside the main cockpit or any of that either. It sort of has 
Death Race vibes. Yes, very much. Yeah. But um, I can't remember the name of the car, but they built it specifically for the movie, and I do know Jay Leno now owns one of them. And years ago, when he was getting ready to finish up on The Tonight Show, he got Charlie to come over and look at the car. And it has a big cult following. I do know this movie still has a very big cult following even now. And um, it's one of those ones I highly recommend to check out. I saw it, I think, about the same time The Young Guns came out, which was in 88. But it's the first film I've definitely seen most of the main actors in. So I definitely recommend it to put it into that killer car kind of movie. But in this instance, we do see the driver. We just don't see him too much. Mm. But he's always covered up. We don't get a good look at him either. Okay. But to go into the very final movie you were mentioning is Wheels of Terror. Yeah. Now, the same thing. It was not, It was directed by another sort of uh, director who had done a bit of television in that at the time, uh, Christopher Carlin. I hope I'm saying his name right. He was the director of The Principal with Jim Belushi, and it was a TV movie as well. Now, mm. I saw this with my father in the early 90s, mm. and the same thing. We never see the driver. Yeah, I remember watching it as a, you know, um, 91, 92. Same um, period, yeah, know, I teenager. saw it. Yeah. And I, I remember watching it with my sister, and I think we were both freaked out by it. Because the, the the car that they've used in this movie, once again, is not just your average-looking car. I don't know whether they've changed it or not, but I think it was a... Um, I was going to say Lincoln. I'll have to look it up. But it was... Um, they've changed the front of it, and it's got that sort of Dodge. menacing look. Yeah. yeah. I had a Dodge feel to it. It's yeah, Dodge, not a, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I had with it. But there's a couple of moments in that film in particular as well. As My, my dad said the same thing. He said, I don't think we're going to see the driver. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes... I hadn't seen Jewel at this point. So for him to say that, I sort of paid attention. But in the movie, it's about a mother who's a bus driver and she starts dropping kids off at the school and some of these kids are taken and killed. Now, what this thing does to them, we don't know. All we know is they're killed. And there's a moment when she's putting in the, the, the school bus to get fixed. Now, the... Mechanic mentions that something. Now, one of the things my father and I talked about, considering how the movie ends, we assume that the engines in the bus were, were ac- accidentally switched with another engine that this guy was using to soup up another car. Just the way that the, the bus moved and went, and I said, I wonder if they swapped the engines by accident or something. It just had that vibe. Because this is a decent... It's not a big school bus. It's one of those small mm. yellow school buses. And it goes toe-to-toe with this car. And this yeah. car is like, how are they sort of doing this? So I think they planted that early to imply that something was uh-huh. done to the bus. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I just remember that menacing look of the car, and it was enough to creep you out as it was. But being a young sort of teenager... Um, preteen. Preteen at <laughs> yes. the time, yeah. and seeing this car driving around, like, abducting children and killing them and doing other things to them, you sort of were quite scared. Vulnerable. Yeah, Vulnerable and you're like, Ooh. Now, there's one scene in the movie where it's parked at the front of the school, and yep. she pulls up, but gets yep. out of the bus and tries to walk up to see the driver. The car takes pulls off. off and takes yep. off. But when she gets back in the, in the bus... It's there again. Yeah, it was yeah. like... What is this? So, well, yeah. And my father said the same thing. He said the the, the front of the car looks like eyes. Mm, and it's yeah. creepy. And there's one bit when we get into the ending, one of them pops out and sort of just hanging there like an eyeball like an hanging eyeball. out of the head. And I was always creeped out by that. Mm. And there's specific kids that are always on the bus. Mm. Now, when we come to the ending, this car grabs this woman's daughter and she yes. refuses to, to give up. Two of the kids are on the bus and they're freaking out and they pull up into, I think it's a construction site or something. Yeah, like one of those huts. Yeah, it was a raised one. Yeah, yeah. And she tells them to get inside and lock the door and then 
she looks it, this car has gone through the construction site and damaged it and it's revving in front of her and she's revving as well mm. and that's when the final battle comes now the thing that this reminds me of it harkens back to aliens mm. it's a mother versing a mother with <laughs> ripley versus a queen well this is the mama bear wanting her cup back and she's yeah. going to fight to the death oh, to she, get it back she went hardcore yeah. chasing this car down in her bus yeah um and and once again that sort of led the whole thing is there anybody driving this or not you know you never got to see the driver the windows were dark on purpose yeah the and daughter the, tried to get out of the car a couple of times do you remember did. that there was yep. like a roof yeah she climbed skylight and or a window yeah a couple of times but we never see the driver yank her back in it's never seen no and there was a couple of survivors um that got abducted by this car but they were too hysterical to speak that's um, right. I forgot so the about sheriff that. couldn't interview them because they were just, you know, in hysterics. So we never knew. I think one of the, actually now thinking back, I think only one person got killed. I think it was. I think yep. it was the best friend of the yes, mother's daughter. I think. Yep, and the scariest way. part about that scene is they're interviewing the mum in the, the the police precinct at the time. Mm. They ask the daughter just to go sit over there, and she sits mm. next to the radio, and she hears the whole yep. report about her friend. Yes. And yeah. then it intercuts with them finding the body, and they did that really well. That mm. that scene, you just heart clenches. Yeah, yeah. But going back to that trope we talked about, how the car dies, it mm. actually drives off the cliff twice. It does. Yeah, Do the first that? time. Yep. It, they think it's dead. Yeah. Over it goes. And, you know, they've given that big sigh of relief and let's get back on with their lives. Just, and they turn around, and what's coming at them in the distance? Spoiler alert. The car's coming back again. Yep. But one of the other things I forgot to mention, they played with the fact that the bus was playing up a bit with yeah. the gears. wouldn't start or wouldn't or get into gear or wouldn't something. wouldn't get yeah. into gear and then it manages to, just in time, suspense, yep. bang. But this time the car does explode, I think. Yeah, the it goes time. over the cliff the second time and it, um, lands, it on lands on an explosives like heart down the bottom which is connected to the construction yeah. site we mentioned earlier and it's blown up into a million bits yeah, yeah. so that one's one of the, the, the exceptions of it actually blows up yeah i don't think jewel it doesn't do it until near the very end when it actually is fully, mm. fully on the ground the yeah truck. and yep. um christine it doesn't blow up no and in in the car when it blew up um, you know, the big puff of smoke and flames that you actually saw like a claw or a face of like a devil or something in the actual explosion of the flames that was in the car. Oh, yeah. But this one was just a normal fireball. So it sort of makes you wonder if you've been following that sequence of movies, you're thinking, okay, if this thing was supernatural, maybe I'd see some sort of devil in the in Well, the fire. The, with the exception, I can also say in the Wraith, the car actually doesn't get destroyed. Right. There's a really good scene with it at the end, but it doesn't mm. get destroyed. It's one of the okay. exceptions. Right. So, highly recommend them all. If you haven't seen them, um, have a look at some of your classic killer car movies. They are a, a bit of a dying breed. We don't have many of them now, but they're certainly well worth the watch. I think they sort of wore out their welcome by the end of the, yeah. by the 90s. I think yep. you think, oh, okay, we've done everything we can with these kind of things. Yeah. There's still films with cars using to kill people, but not, not in this Not that supernatural sense. type yes. of thing. And yeah. implied supernatural as well. Yeah. So, no, I definitely agree with Jay. These are films that are definitely worth checking out if you're interested in... Um, but I also will recommend the fact that several of them still hold up to this day, and that's because it was pre-CG. They mm. were using practical effects and stunts yeah. that yep. just make it that It actually work. makes it more believable, doesn't yes, it? Yes, I yeah. agree with that. And so I'm, I'm not knocking anyone that's fans of the Fast and Furious films, but there's times in those films when it's too CG, mm. and I'm taken out of it, and I'm like, oh, come on, if they could just done it a little real. Also, the safety factor has to be taken into it. Mm. 
And in the, in the case of the Rafe, I do believe someone was killed. I think a cameraman was killed okay. driving on the camera cars. It was just too overloaded. Oh. They were coming around a bend or something. So that's the only one that I know of on these particular films that there was a, was a death. Mm. So I think there is that safety factor as well, why CG is yeah. used more often than um, practical effects. But you look at even Fury Road, I mean, pr- primarily that film is almost, uh, I think, 70% practical and 30% CG. But... For safety reasons, I wouldn't risk it either. I would mm-hmm. like, no, 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 we need to be careful here. Cool. Well, that sums up this episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you keep listening to us. And if you're happy to keep listening, we're happy to keep talking. Done. See you again soon for another exciting Retro Guardians episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Retro Guardians.